Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful who have gathered here out of love for you, in person and online. And may my words and our hearts glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As I begin the sermon today, I want to tell you that I don't know, it's been a long time that I have so wrestled with a passage as I have with this one. Uh, Oftentimes I preach from the Gospels. Uh, It's great because there's a lot of storytelling in the Gospels. Sometimes from the Psalms, and that's great because you get all the passion of the singer. Uh, The letters of Paul provide an interesting challenge to a preacher. And I really have to tell you that I wrestled and wrestled and wrestled and wrestled. And I hope, like Jacob, who wrestled with the angel, I got the blessing. But that remains to be seen. Years ago, when we were cleaning out my grandparents' house in Somerville, Texas, uh, we had the opportunity to go through the dining room buffet and the china cabinet and, and the secretary in the living room and, and the dressers in the bedrooms to go through and clean things out and prepare the house for somebody who was going to move in and bring life back to it. And so it was a joyous occasion. It wasn't sad at all. My dad was uh, with us at that time, and, and we went up to the attic, and there was just lots of stuff, all stuff. I mean, you know how addicts collect things. And uh, my dad had been in World War II, and when they were firing guns, right before they fired, they'd say, headache, and then the gun would go off. And so we had a truck backed up, and so he was throwing things out the window of the attic into the bed of that truck and going, headache, you know, the whole time. It was, it was pretty fun. But in, in that time of uh, cleaning out that house, um, I ran across a bundle of letters that I still have that were letters that my grandmother kept that had come from my dad when he was in Europe during World War II. They were tender-hearted and, and interesting and had all the colloquialism that, uh, you, that you found at that time in history. Uh, he, he, he had all these, you know, sayings uh, and, and it was just precious to read these letters. You know, letters are an art form, and we've sort of lost that in our contemporary society. Although, people still write, and people write and books, and people read books more than they ever have. And people uh, collect letters and put them into books. And so we have this rich history. And, and you know... <laughs> Because the internet saves everything, uh, we will not run short of letters written to each other, either through email or, or uh, text or Facebook messages or tweets or even TikTok. So I don't want to put us down for being a contemporary society that operates in this technological way. Uh, but I do want to lift this up, this idea of letter writing or sending notes to people. Today... I have to tell you that this is perhaps the most beautiful letter that Paul wrote. Um, 
It is literally filled with verses you probably recognize and could quote. It is only four chapters long. It's three and a half pages in your Bible. I mean, it's, it's four chapters long, and yet it has these words and sayings that are so powerful. Paul says, make my joy complete. He says, have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. He says, I consider all I have gained loss. I forget what lies behind and press on toward the goal of Jesus Christ. He begs the people at Philippi to care for Euodia and Syntyche, who were women, he said, who had been with him in the struggle of the gospel. So all your thoughts that um, Paul was a misogynist, I want to disavow you of that. He, used, he, he worked alongside women to bring about the sharing of the gospel. And then probably among the most famous of his words, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say re rejoice. And just prior to what we heard read this morning, these are powerful words. He writes, finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, to understand the depth of Paul's love for this church, to understand his deep contentment, we can hear that in that last line of the phrase that precedes what we heard today. And the God of peace will think on these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I think it's helpful to know that the words joy and rejoice appear 16 times in this letter. Paul is full of joy and rejoicing. He has received a gift from the Philippian church um, brought to him by Epaphras. And um, he is beside himself with joy and rejoicing. And, and, and that makes a lot of sense. But what doesn't make sense is that he's in prison. He's in prison in Philippi, which we expect was a hole in the ground with no light. So maybe he had a candle to write by? We don't know. He's in prison, and yet in a three-and-a-half-page letter, he speaks of joy and rejoicing 16 times. 16 times. And he talks about the God of peace being with you. So he has somehow managed to be content. He has somehow managed to find what it is to be content, the mystery of contentment. We could call it the mystery of contentment, couldn't we? And he ends 
the scripture today with, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now that's not the end of the letter. So much has been written about that phrase and much has been pondered about the elusive idea of contentment, right? Love the story of the airline pilot who was flying over Texas and pointed out a lake to his co-pilot. See that little lake? He said, when I was a kid, I used to sit in a rowboat down there fishing and every time a plane would fly over, I would look up and wish I was flying it. Now I look down and wish I was in a rowboat fishing. Oh, contentment is an elusive pursuit, isn't it? As we go after what we think will make us happy, only to find that it doesn't work. In fact, sometimes we're happier before we started the quest. We were happier before we started the quest. So why is it that contentment is so hard for us? Well, there's lots of reasons. You know some of them. You've lived some of them. The great contemporary theologian Richard Foster, writing in his classic book, The Celebration of Discipline, explains it this way. In contemporary society, our adversary majors in three things. Noise, hurry, crowds. If evil can keep us engaged in muchness and manyness, it will rest satisfied. Hurry is not of the devil. It is the devil. Now, think back on the last year of your life. Think back on the last few years of your life. And, and we had this moment in the early part of the pandemic where everything shut down, right? Everything shut down. There was no traffic. The, the streams and rivers began to clear up. I, I was shocked at, 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 is it Venice that has all the canals? And how all of a sudden they could begin to see the fish again. And all the smog went away. And there was a time there in the beginning of the pandemic where perhaps we rested a little bit better, but now muchness and manyness begins to take hold again, right? And, and it comes with rage, turns out. People are raging because, well, they're recovering. They're recovering from all the loss. And so rage is part of it as well. And so the mystery of contentment is right at the forefront. We see the mystery of content, contentment uh, you know, the lack of contentment in our high rate of consumer debt. The discontentment with our, with living within our means. Uh, the pressure of paying bills, and so we get a, a higher paying job in order to pay more bills, so we get a higher paying job. Anyway, you know that cycle. And, and then, you know, we also see it in, in so much else. Our discontent is reflected in our high rate of mobility. You know, people... And especially right now when the housing market is on fire, you know, uh, we had uh, dinner with some friends last night and we began talking about, well, we'd sell our house, but we couldn't afford to live anywhere else, you know. Uh, and so there's that. And our lack of contentment is seen in our clamoring for, for uh, people to notice us and give us the best and us our rights when 
In fact, we're just being acting victimized, you know? And, and so we are discontent. We're suing each other at an unbelievable rate in order to get ahead or to get justice, whatever that is. And then there's the lottery. Did you know that, um, now I, I, I'm going to confess, I wouldn't mind winning the lottery. Would you? I mean, but the truth is, when they interview people who won the lottery, oftentimes they're not content people. I, I'd like to try, <laughs> you know. I guess I'd like to try. But anyway, uh, and that's just honest. I'm just being honest. I'm just being honest. So what is a mystery that Paul has um, broken open about contentment for us? You know, he's not only in prison, but officials have brought charges against him that may mean he will be executed. So, in, so the ability to look upon your finiteness to recognize that we as human beings do not live forever, to look upon that and gaze upon it is one of the ways in which we put things in perspective. The Masons uh, have a, a devotional where they sit and examine death in order to bring wisdom. And while that's not fun, uh, it, it can be an opening. It can be a way to better understand life in the here and now. In, in visiting with some people, we talked about, you know, uh, when a parent dies. For me, I had two very loving parents. So my mother died first, and then my dad died, and I realized I was an orphan. All of a sudden, at age blah, blah, blah. You know, uh, I was an orphan. And so, um, you know, I think uh, that is one of the things Paul is doing here. He's in prison. He's been given a huge gift that has brought him joy. And he has been gazing upon his finite life. And in that, he has found a way to put his trust in the God of Jesus Christ. And of Jesus Christ himself. Um, and yet, even in the midst of this, Paul is writing this love letter, a thank you letter. His contentment lies buried in the midst of this letter. See, you see, from the very beginning of his ministry, the Philippians have been faithful in supporting him from the very beginning. There weren't many of his churches that he started that did that. The Corinthians fought like cats and dogs. But this church was faithful. They supported him, they stayed with him, they, they honored him, and now, after sitting in prison for a while, they have sent him a gift. And he wants to express this heartfelt thanks. Thanks, and not, and here's the thing, listen to this, oh, this is so good. He doesn't express his thanks because of the gift. The, the tangible gift, whether it was food or money or letter writing material, whatever it was, we don't know, but he doesn't express his thanks for the gift. What he expresses his thanks for is the faithfulness of the Philippians to follow Jesus. That's what he is giving thanks for. 
not the tangible things. He's giving thanks for this magnanimous gesture of love given to him by the Philippians. So um, the word content in Greek uh, expresses uh, what it means to be self-sufficient and independent, and yet that is not what Paul is talking about here. Paul's understanding of the word content is not this idea of being self-sufficient and independent, but rather uh, committed to this deep relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's what he's about. He was not detached from his feelings and his love for the people of Philippi, but his joy and contentment is how faithful this church has been in following Jesus Christ. And neither does he understand content as complacency, which we could easily go to, couldn't we? That if you're content, you just sit back and let things happen and all of that. No, we don't need to dwell in a place or circumstances that are difficult and that steals our lives. Paul's understanding of contentment reaches far to a far deeper place. It is an inner sense of rest and peace that comes from being in relationship with God. It means having our focus on the realm of God and serving God, humanity, and creation, not for the love of money or physical things, but simply because God loves us. That is his understanding. And contentment also mean, does not mean um, being beat up by difficult circumstances or people. Um, it doesn't mean... Uh, contentment doesn't mean uh, being seduced by prosperity, um, but it rather means to have a life centered on God in Jesus Christ. So then contentment comes from focusing on God, focusing on serving God and others, and focusing on God as sufficient for our needs. Now that last one's really hard, because if you've ever not had enough money to pay the bills at the end of the month, not had food in the pantry, it's hard to focus on God as sufficient for our needs. But here's what I think Paul knows. Okay, here's what I think is a key. I think Paul believes, and rightly so, that God could change Paul's circumstances. Something could happen, and Paul could be released from the prison and avoid being executed by the state. So that could happen. But Paul knows that God's greatest desire is to change him, to change Paul. It's not to change his circumstances. It's to transform him. You grasp that? That's a powerful thought. And his, so he puts his total and complete trust in God, and this is the same trust that Jesus puts in God, Upon his execution, he turns his life over to God. Is what Jesus does. And so Paul is mirroring what Jesus did. Clearly, now, and, and so Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But clearly, that's not a literal thing. Because Paul is talking about a spiritual thing. Paul is being spiritual. 
And so, um, Paul could not free himself from prison, so he can't do all things. So, this claim, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, I mean, points to his claim of contentment. He has discovered what it is to dwell in this deep personal relationship with God that overcomes all circumstances. Now, some translations say that this passage says, I can endure all things through Christ who strengthens me. Enduring can be a good translation, but, but it doesn't matter. I mean, it's all about living in this trusting relationship with God. However you hear it or read it, the claim is the same. Contentment is found in the deep, abiding relationship with God through Jesus Christ in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Listen, we're together again, so I got some homework for you this week. I'm so excited. I want you, in the week ahead, to read the full letter of Paul to the Philippians. You will be amazed at what washes over you. The whole letter. It will take you maybe 15 minutes. Maybe. And for those of you that read really fast, maybe 10. But I want you to read it. I want you to read the whole letter several times this week before we come back together again. Then I want you to spend some time contemplating with what are you discontented? And with what are you content? A few years ago, I ran across a book called The Grasshopper Myth. Confessions of a Small Church Pastor. It was great because it was a real eye-opener for me. The, the writer took this passage from the story about Joshua and, and the people going into the promised land and, and people, the, the other people coming back and saying to Moses, you know, we are but grasshoppers to them. They are giants. And, and he began to talk about how all his life he had spent chasing after the dream of being a big church pastor. He'd gone to seminars, he'd done workshops, he's read books, he had studied and studied, and no matter what he tried to do, he was still a pastor of a small church. I know that. I know what that's like. When I became a United Methodist minister, I had my sights on becoming a bishop. I had grown up in the Methodist church. I loved the Methodist church. The Methodist church had baptized me, confirmed me, and ordained me. So why shouldn't I become a bishop? And then I was outed. And I lost my job. And I lost my church. I lost some friends. And I very nearly lost some family. It was among the most painful things I had ever experienced in my life. But I girded my loins and found a job and went to work at Texas A&M University. And I kind of messed around for a couple of years and then finally uh, my partner at the time said, okay, we gotta go back to church for your sake. So we went back to church. We shopped around for a while and we found ourselves at Friends Congregational Church. And I decided to go after becoming a United Church of Christ minister. So I gave my ordination back to the Methodist Church and I went after becoming a United Church of Christ pastor. And uh, it all went pretty well, I have to say. And when I 
did get ordained, the interim conference minister came to me and said, I think we have a church for you. It's in Longview. Now, we're not sure they'll take a woman pastor, but we ought to try. And I said, David, I'm not just a woman pastor. I'm a lesbian woman pastor. And I thought, well, that's it. The jig is up. And uh, he put his hand on my hand, and he said, Joe, I'm certain of two things. First, I believe God has called you to preach and witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Second, I believe God has made you exactly as you are. We're just going to have to find another church. <laughs> well, we did. I stayed. I became pastor of Friends Congregational Church, was there for seven years, and then got, you know, so... Pastors have egos because they wouldn't be pastors if they didn't, right? All you pastors in the audience. But um, I never dreamed I'd get the chance to be the pastor of the largest, open and affirming, LGBT-loving, LGBT-historically and predominantly church in what we think is the whole world. Well, that's a little exaggerated, but anyway. <laughs> so... I took the call, I went up there, and it was, I wouldn't trade that experience for all the world. It was a great experience, but it was so hard. And ultimately, when push came to shove, the end of my ministry there, it was a rough road. And it broke my heart. And then came you. New church. Chiesa United Church of Christ. And I remember sitting with Stephanie in the afternoons before we went to get Sydney from school and telling her, I have never been so happy in all my life than to pastor this church. I still wrestle with contentment, as I imagine you do too. You know, if we pay attention to Paul and remember that Paul knew that the gift, the tangible things were not the important thing. What God wanted was to change Paul. And what God wants is to change you and me. You and me. This is the great calling of our faith. That we that we love God, that we follow Jesus, and that we are open to the movement of the Holy Spirit in our lives to transform us. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Amen.